This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to Profoundly Pointless. My name is Nick Vinzant. Coming up in this episode, swords and the best sharp things. I'm focusing on the higher end pieces, so I only make half a dozen, maybe a dozen if I'm making a lot, swords a year. You got to be part artist and part athlete. You really do. You have to condition yourself. This business as a business is, is, is grueling. You got to continue to develop everything. I would say so far the Witcher sword that we made was very, very difficult. We made it out of meteorite. I want to thank you so much for joining us. If you get a chance, subscribe, leave us a rating or a review. We really appreciate it. It really helps us out. So our first guest has been making swords for 20 plus years, and he can do something that very few other people can do. Make steel from scratch. And when he makes swords, he's not just making really high-end detailed swords. He's making historical swords and even ones from fiction, like the Zelda sword or the Witcher sword or an 11-foot-long sword used by Optimus Prime. This is sword maker Matt Stagmer. How hard is it to make a sword? I would say for the general person, it's almost impossible. <laughs> uh, having 25 years of experience, almost 24 and a half, um, I can make a generic sword pretty quickly, and it's not terribly difficult. However, just like any other art form, swords can be simple or they can be very elaborate, and the elaborate ones take can take a year. So there's a lot of work and a lot of skill to develop to get there. Now, was it always swords for you, or did you kind of start out making something else and then go well, into swords? for me, I never thought about being a sword maker. However, my brother's uh, 19 years older than me, so when I needed a job, um, he was already making swords and armor on a very elementary level. They weren't nice at all, but he had a business established, and I was already doing architecture and engineering in high school and, like, just about every artistic thing you could do. So I was already like developing those kind of skills you would need. And I just kind of wanted a generic job when I was 15. And I started working with him. I always thought that would be just kind of a, a side gig. Um, but for me, it just stuck. I tried a bunch of different things. I tried A plus net plus. I tried the whole uh, network engineering thing and just always kind of came back that nothing could hold my interest like making swords because it's, it really has all kinds of different artistic avenues in it. So it really was the, the right route for me. Then I ended up sticking with it. Kind of fought it until maybe my mid-20s till I really kind of embraced that that was what my life was going to be. But yeah, that's how I got started. Why is it so difficult to make them? Is it difficult because like, all right, this is advanced physics? Or is it difficult like you've – it's just step after step after step. Well, I mean, there's, like I said, there's levels. So, like, when I first started, we were basically taking a bar of steel and just on grinders, 
grinding the shape. There wasn't really any forging done, no hot works per se, until you heat treat the blade. Um, but now, where I'm at now, I forge every single blade. I even try to make my own steel from time to time. I certainly develop patterns in Damascus. There's all kinds. Of, if you imagine mosaic tiles, you can literally mosaic steels, different steels together, and make elaborate patterns within the blade itself before you even get to grinding. So there's a. It really is one of those crafts, especially if you break it down into regional cultures. Like if you just study Japanese katanas, or if you just study European swords. Like every single one of those disciplines is a lifelong uh, journey to learn those disciplines. Um, so you never really finish learning how to make a sword. I know how to make some swords very well, pretty fast and efficient, and other ones I'm you know I'm just learning. And you're you're a constant student of the craft if you're doing it right basically until you stop when you say like i can make that pretty fast like how long does it take you to make one quickly on average longest it's taken you the reason i say that is because like i'm kind of considered to be one of the guys that goes the fastest um i've just i've made probably well over a hundred thousand swords in my time now a lot of those are very simple stage combat stuff you might see at a renaissance festival the jousters using they are not sharp they're just kind of made to look sharp and be tough in a stage presence so they can clang together not break you have to make them tough so those are a lot quicker than say if i was making a high-end uh, medieval reproduction where it was sharp and the edge had to be perfectly aligned and all of that kind of stuff so for me, um, back when I was doing those production swords, I could make about 10 a day. Um, now, that's with the team around me as well, so I'm not doing everything yeah, myself. Yeah. But if I did do it myself, still, you know, multiple a day. Um, now I'm slowed down, which has been a hard thing. So, I've, like I said, I've been making swords for almost 25 years. In my later part of my career now, where I'm basically working on my own, I'm focusing on the higher end pieces. So I only make half a dozen maybe a dozen if i'm making a lot swords a year you can make them fast you can make them slow definitely somewhere in the middle is probably where the affordable uh pieces come from but right now i'm trying to focus on the nicer pieces is making a sword inherently more difficult than making a knife or is it just the sword's mm. harder because it's bigger that's a good question and if you asked most people go from making knives to then making larger and larger pieces um so they're knife makers and then they're like might try a sword or two in their career or maybe they just embrace the sword thing and they would say swords are much harder i would say the knives at the level of standard that i'm trying to make them now which is like perfection is much much harder than making a sword so with a sword you're working from let's just say medieval swords you're working from a medieval sword standard and if you look at the fit and finish that was made back then they were all made by hand there was no electrical computer controlled milling machines or uh, or routers or anything like that making them they're all made by hand and there's imperfections which actually to me are very pleasant to the eye because it shows the craftsman it shows the the fingerprints of the craftsman in the whole piece so the fit and finish of the swords is not as high as a modern knife where everything is expected to be perfect and look like a robot made it so to me i think modern modern knife making not reproduction knife making but modern knife making to me at this point is much harder than making swords 
Really? But most people would say just the sheer size of a sword is what makes it difficult. For me, I'm just bred and just raised in that. So, like, the size doesn't scare me. It's more of the minute details that are what I'm trying to learn. Is it harder to do kind of like the big things or the little tiny things in the sense that like is it to make the whole blade or is it like, man, it's really hard to just make this little cut at the top? So – yeah, so we get so I run a YouTube channel um, where we make everything from giant like video game swords to making very historical smaller reproductions of something because people always think of like Conan where swords are big and heavy, but the realistic sword is actually quite light under three hundred uh, under three pounds total. So a sword, a medieval sword, is very light. Um, but I, we get asked all the time, "What was the hardest build you've ever done on the YouTube channel?" And sure, like something like Optimus Prime's giant sword that we made huge—it's like, you know, eleven feet tall—would be considered something that was very difficult just because of its sheer size and having to maneuver it around and grind its shape. But for me, the historical, small, highly detailed—sometimes the Japanese pieces—those are truly where you—you're not just physically overwhelmed you actually have to have developed the skill and the eye for those minute details so i would say the minute details are much more difficult to achieve in sword making than say just grand scale so you know in kind of the ten thousand foot view mm-hmm. to use corporate language yeah. which i which i just cringed a little bit at hearing me say that but like <laughs> People can see this on your YouTube channel, but in general, like, how do you make a sword? What's kind of the process? So the way I go about making swords these days, um, first I'm going to decide whether or not this is going to be a Damascus sword. Let's just take that as an example. Damascus sword is a layered sword, uh, often uh, referred to as pattern welded. So we're talking, uh, I know not all the viewers can see me, but you have one layer of steel, another layer of steel, and we're like literally piling it up. And you forge weld those into one. And by the time you get a blade out, depending on how you manipulate those levels, those layers, you get a beautiful pattern. I start by selecting what steels I'm going to use. Now you want to use something that's going two different kinds of steels. So they show different colorization in the end. Forge weld those together. So if I start with, say, 20 layers in that initial stack, i got to decide how many layers you want in a sword. Now you hear like... In books and novels, a million layer blade or the blade had been folded a million times. What they mean is increasing that layer by literally drawing it out, folding it on itself. So now I have 40 layers. Draw it out, folding on itself. Now I have 80. Draw it out. Now I have 60. Multiplying it. It's not like one, two, three. Right. So back in the day when they were making their own steels from literally iron ore, they had to fold just to get the impurities out. So they wouldn't say, I'm going to make a 300 layer blade. They would keep folding that material until all the, all the impurities were gone and they had a nice solid chunk of steel. And then they would make their blade. For me as a modern maker, I'd have to decide on the look that I want because modern steels are obviously much better than what you can make uh, from dirt. So for me, I decide the layer count, forge it, forge that initial billet, fold it as many times as I want. Then I'm forging the sword. Then you rough grind the sword. Then you heat treat. The, this is all just the blade. Then you heat treat, which means if, I'm just going to give a very generic definition yeah, yeah, of yeah. heat treat. But you would heat the blade up till basically a red hot color and quench it in either water or oil. And that fast cooling of the steel, the super fast cooling, 
makes your blade very, very tough, very hard. Um, you then actually have to heat it up very slowly to a lower level, like 400 degrees. Like, that's what your average kitchen oven uh, reaches, to give you context. To then take it from that super brittle hard back to a toughness. Then you have a hardened blade. And then from there, all the finishing work, all the garniture, forging or grinding all your, you know, your guard, your pommel, which is the counterbalance, making your handle out of wood, deciding how you're going to finish the handle, whether you're going to cover it in leather, cover it in cord, cover it in wire. There's so many options. And that's just kind of working from a medieval, you know, like if you picture a medieval knight in your head, um, yeah. that's how you'd make that style of sword. Um, that's just a very brief overview of how you would do it. But there's many, many steps. What determines if something is a good sword? Is it just the steel itself and how many times it's been folded? Is it the edge? Like, Well, that would be what its intended use is, what the intended buyer or uh, person that it's made for. A lot of modern sword makers these days are selling to HEMA practitioners, which are historical um, European martial artists who take manuscripts of how the knights and people back in the medieval time actually fought and they do their very best to learn that craft as if they were in the shoes of someone back then so if you're making something for them they need it light they need it sharp they need it as close to historically accurate as possible and they need it to not break so all of those things are very very important if i'm selling to uh say elon musk or somebody like that who wants the most elaborate, beautiful sword to literally hang in a lobby and say, wow, look what I got, um, or, or any art collector, perhaps the most important to them is how visually impressive it is. So really, there's so many different um, things that literally when somebody contacts me and says, hey, will you make me a sword? I don't take that many commissions anymore, kind of make what I want and then sell it, but it's a long conversation to figure out exactly what their intended use is so I can get the piece in their hand that will make them uh, the happiest. Yeah, so that's Man. a long answer to, to a short no. question, but yeah, there's a lot just, that goes. When, you're, when you talk about folding the sword, mm-hmm. we're talking about one same piece of steel, not like an Oreo cookie where I got like this piece and yeah, it actually, piece on it. It is kind of like an Oreo cookie. Um, so the reason that you'd make... Damascus in the modern world, Damascus or pattern world steel, however you want to refer to it, in the modern world is literally for beauty. So, hot, you know what nickel is? Nickel is a very shiny metal, right? So, if you have yeah. one of your metals has high nickel in it, that's going to be very bright in the end. And if you take something with very low nickel, it's going to etch very dark color. So, by the time you make this pattern, like an Oreo cookie, um, many, many, many Oreo cookies on top, and then you smash it to a blade and you lay it out. You have almost like a topographical map when you etch it. Etching meaning you put it into an acid of some sort, and then it etches both of those materials differently. So you have like a black and white look to your blade with all kinds of however you manipulate the pattern. There's a million ways to do it. Uh, it's hard to explain non-technical, but yeah, so... Yes, you are using two different metals to start with in modern uh, making. Oh, and then you, so you combine the two metals and then you start the folding process, basically. Sure. Mm-hmm. Okay. Are we, are we better at this now than we used to be? 
<sighs> well, that's also a hard question to answer. So, if you want to, it took more skill to refine raw materials into a sword. It took way more knowledge and skill than buying my steel like I do from a steel manufacturer, and they give it to me. And I know I have detailed scientific specs of everything: how much carbon, how much chrome, how much molybdenum, every kind of element that's in that steel i have a i have a readout on a big sheet of paper of everything that's in there they didn't have that so they needed just to be able to get to the point to make a bar that's tough enough to make a sword they had to know how to refine it now when i'm saying refining it to get the, the flaws out it's more than that so we're using modern propane forges that blow uh, oxygen and propane in and ignite in a very calculated way and we know how we know what's going on in there scientifically there's set amount of h2o oxygen propane everything we know what's going on they're using charcoal and coal to forge their stuff in so they're actually adding carbon as they're working they have to know what temperatures they have to know a lot more and just that knowledge before we're even talking about the skill to sculpt the steel itself is much more than the average knife or sword maker has these days. Now, what's really neat, what's been going on in, say, the last, I'd say, 10 years in the sword making community, not so much the knife making, but sword making community, is we are getting back to making our own steels and seeing uh, historical manuscripts of how they made uh, these smelters and trying to literally start from dirt and create our own steels. Uh, it's something that the Japanese culture never let go of they've always kept that tradition from you know a thousand years ago till now they have sword makers and you're only allowed to be a sword maker if you do it right in japan there are no bad sword makers in japan but in the european context or uh you know the western world if you will we don't have that continuous culture of making swords for obvious reasons because they pretty much became extinct so we're trying to as sword makers there's a lot of people getting into how to make the steel, how to work the steel, and how to do it like they cl as close as possible to how maybe they did it. And that's been a fun journey. I kind of have dabbled in myself as well, as, along with my partner, Ilya. He really is into it. And, um, yeah, it's hard to say. Like, are they going to make if, – if you want to stack up a, the average medieval sword maker versus me or the average – uh, sword maker today and put those swords together and like test them against each other i'd say the swords of today will destroy them but if we're talking about pure talent i mean it took a lot more work knowledge and skill to do it back then than it does today for sure can you make it from scratch like mm -hmm. i give you dirt and rocks and you could all right i mean it has to be the certain kind you know iron right, iron right, right. but yes yeah i have and there's videos of us doing it I actually just demonstrated up in New York last year uh, how to do how to do that smelting in front of a big audience at uh, the Maker Camp. It's a really cool uh, get together of all kinds of different makers. We did a whole demonstration in front of a crowd of how to smelt your own steel from literally like black sand. That, like if you walk along the beach, you ever seen those black lines in yeah, the yeah, sand? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's iron. Literally, somebody collected that with a magnet, and we made that into steel which we haven't made into a sword yet but we made the steel how many people like just in the united states for example like how many people know how to do this still are, are, i guess are we talking hundreds thousands no. tens of thousands no no, no. Uh, maybe uh, maybe 20 and and like we're talking about making your own steel and making a piece um, yeah i'd say there's 
I mean, 10 years ago, there were like four. And now there's maybe, you know, 20, maybe a few more than that. But not, I mean, a lot of people do it once to say they did it. Uh, that doesn't mean they did it right and did it enough right. times to really, to really learn it. But there's not that many. There really isn't. Man, how many just even sword makers in general? I mean, I guess there's, it depends on what level are we talking about. Are we talking like they do it for a living or they have made a sword? Um, there's, there's That's... a really cool network of teaching and classes now in the blacksmithing and bladesmithing world where you can go and take a week long course and you can go home with a sword with very little experience at all where they'll teach you how to do it. And if you're struggling, they'll help you and. It's a really cool thing you can do. So if you're really into it and you want to do it, it's kind of like I encourage you to go into it with a little bit of knowledge on metal. But if you don't have any, there's still places you can learn how to do it. I'd say people making a living making swords, it's under 100 uh, for sure. Wow. Companies that like do it, under a dozen. But the companies, they're just mass producing it, right? There's not somebody with a hammer banging. No, no. I mean, both of that. I've seen both oh, of really? it. A lot of them are using modern, you know, equipment to do it. Like there's a company called Albion who makes about $3,000, two to $3,000 swords, and they're all modern made, but they're doing it right and really getting the, the, the end result is very museum esque. Now, how much will you sell one of your swords for? Um, you know, I'm kind of still pretty new to this higher end stuff. Um, but I'd say a sword, a really basic forged sword for me is still going to be several thousand dollars, two to three thousand um, dollars. The most expensive piece I've ever sold was about twelve thousand. Uh, my partner just sold one for forty thousand. Wow! <laughs> I say partner, I mean in my business, Ilya. He's a uh, he's from Russia. He's a good friend of mine. We worked together at Ball and Rifle and Sword a bunch, and now we've made our own business called That Works where we kind of still are two very separate entities where he has his stuff and I have my stuff, but we get together and make videos, uh, you know, at least one a month of making stuff together where we're doing projects together for the most part. And uh, he makes much higher end stuff. Um, he's learned, he's got, we just went down two different paths. He's more into the, yeah, yeah. the hand engraving stuff. So you see like all the surfaces carved, very elaborate pieces. And those pieces can go from 40,000 they can be you know sky's the limit with that because the value is kind of in the beholder so he's gotten into some higher end art exhibitions where it's more of an auction so you kind of like set your you know your minimum just like if you were selling something on ebay and the buyers get to bid it out and you know you might be like to yourself say this is worth 10,000 but maybe a medieval art collector or somebody who has a van gogh in their mansion, once a sword hang next to it, they might pay 150 grand for a sword. So, I mean, it really is subjective. You ever wonder, though, if somebody pays like 40000 for a sword, if they're just like swinging it around at home? Like hey, a you kid. know, they want to pay that. I mean, honestly, the piece that he sold, that was about seven months off and on, not like continuous, but not, almost yeah, seven months continuous work of high end work that he's spent a lifetime learning how to do so it's not something i could teach someone to make does it take a pretty good toll on your body absolutely yeah yeah so i went from 
doing the production sword stuff where I was literally at a sword grinder for eight hours a day. That's all I did. I just ground blades. That's pretty much all I did. I didn't forge much back then. That was, forging was kind of a luxury. I would take, that would be my easy day off forging, grinding big swords. Um, my elbows, my hands, my shoulders, everything you could imagine. Just, you know, I'm, I'm not only 39 years old, but I've had like, uh, tendonitis. I've had like years of pain in my in my joints yeah it can, it's it's tough and it just is and you if you do things properly and you condition yourself you you gotta you gotta be part artist and part athlete you really do you have to condition yourself a lot of people like say if you watch forge and fire if you see like uh, uh fantasy movies you think of the blacksmith being this big fat guy with a big beard now i got the big beard and i'm not exactly the skinniest guy but that it's not really the case. Somebody who's going to do this for a living is going to have to condition themselves. Um, doesn't mean you're going to have a six-pack abs, but you are going to have shoulders that have something yeah. to them. You're going to have forearms that you know that have some some muscle, and and you you have to treat it that way. You, and you have to do things kind of in sets. Like you have to take a break, let your muscles cool down, let the lactic acid get out. It's literally just like a workout. Like if you do it nonstop and don't take a break um you'll deteriorate just like if somebody stayed in the gym doing the same workout all day like just can't do it now is that because like you've got to do this thing so many times or because you just got to like full max effort swing wait a minute full like is it you got to hit it that hard or you got to hit it that many times um both so like say like i said i have experience of being somebody who made tons of pieces and then making you know, yeah, taking my time yeah, on the higher end pieces. So when you're in the sword production, yeah, it's just the, the repetition. It's literally like reps, like if you're working out. For the higher end stuff, you still want to do it proficient, especially when we're making videos of a lot of this stuff. So we don't want to just put out the general information to people who don't understand. There's a lot of people who really understand what we're doing and actually are trying to learn the craft that watch our videos. So we need to show them the proper techniques and... Um, really propel the craft in the proper manner as much as we possibly can so you know some of the shortcuts you don't take in those videos you know where we have power hammers big machines that boom 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 that kind of replicate the swinging of the hammer and we use a lot of power hammers in our videos but at the same time we still want to show you how to do it by hand so you know it's a lot of work just is it's fun don't get me wrong i have a great time I really do. I enjoy what I've done my basically my entire life, and uh, I highly recommend this as a hobby to anybody who wants to grab a hobby. Blacksmithing, bladesmithing is a great hobby. A lot of people would – like I've done TV shows um, like with Danny Trejo was my co-host, or I guess I was his co-host. I should say it that way. I've been on TV doing this craft, and it, I still would highly recommend people to do this as a hobby and not a job. It's very difficult to do it as a job and to find – you have to be everything. You have to be like a social media genius because you got to market yourself. This business as a business is 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 grueling. you got to continue to develop everything. Are you ready for some harder slash listener submitted questions? Yes, I am. What sword was the hardest for you to make? So kind of to harken back to what we said before there's two levels of difficulty that i like to answer that question with one and sometimes is just the sheer size of something like the optimus prime sword which had like uh over 700 and some pieces 
to put together to make a sword. And it was just gigantic. So that's very, very difficult. And then there's other things like the Japanese pieces that have very high level of detail. So for me, I would say so far the Witcher sword that we made was very, very difficult. We made it out of meteorite, forged it, had to grind it, put tons of detail. There's gems set in it, silver work, gold work. I'd say the more detailed stuff is, is definitely the most difficult. Is there a culture that, like, looking back, like, oh, they probably made the best swords? That's going to be an ongoing ongoing debate that no matter what answer I give you is going to be difficult. Now, I will straight up tell you that I haven't really dove into the Japanese blades specifically because I know when I do, it's going to eat up eight years of my life. Uh, but the Japanese culture definitely refined the craft as an art more so than any other culture. Um, some people will say their sword blades weren't as good. Some people will say their swords were like just way better, tenfold better than a medieval sword. Um, I would say that functionality is just different. They weren't, it's like comparing an AR-15 and an AK-47. They both seem to do the job pretty well and they're very, very different. So I would say as a generic answer, as an artist, I would say the Japanese culture. But they weren't necessarily the most useful when you look kind of back on it. It's just a different beast. You know, they didn't have knights in shining armor there. Their their armor and stuff was usually made out of leather, out of bamboo. They weren't really going up against full-plated knights, if you would. So that weapon evolved differently. That's a, that's an island culture, so that's kind of... Think of it as another planet. That sword... Yeah, yeah. That sword At that time, did, yeah. That sword sure. was made the way it was, uh, you know thousand years ago and that sword pretty much i mean little minute changes but pretty much stayed the same piece and didn't evolve then if you take medieval weaponry we go from uh one-handed swords uh all the way up to like if you see three musketeers fencing style swords because the evolution was you know no armor then you had to make a sword that went up against armor then it went back to no armor and firearms so the sword was kind of more of your secondary thing. You'd have a firearm first, then you'd have a very fancy elaborate sword that was a status symbol and all of that. So in the Western world, the sword evolved very much differently than, say, in Japan, uh, which may be some of the reason why katanas and uh, the Japanese culture developed such a high, rich art form because it was continuous and it was the same for, you know, very hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years and continues to be so so they really got a chance to perfect that kind of singular item where in europe every 50 years they were changing completely the weaponry they were using now looking at it like what would you say is your favorite historical sword uh, I've, I, I've always said the gladius which is the roman uh short sword uh it's kind of my favorite it's a very wide kind of leaf blade sword um but i mean it changes all the time i love the beautiful hand and a half which is like if you see lord of the rings they have long swords with two-handed grips it's kind of like there's a beauty in that i think that's kind of the highest level of evolution that that style of sword had i also really enjoy the viking swords viking swords kind of like just have a feel to them that nothing else has but i'd say it's my signature, like what people think of me enjoying the most, would be the Roman Gladius. I mean, that's the sword that literally conquered the world at that time. Yeah, that's so, that. 
is there one looking back on it, like historical swords, where you'd say, oh, that's actually a lot harder to make than people would think? Oh, man, just about all of them. <laughs> I would <laughs> say um, like the the later uh, rapiers, the, the Three Musketeers era, if you will, swords. Um, if you make one of those today, uh, we have modern welders to put all the elaborate different basket weaved guards together to weld all the pieces together but they didn't have them so they had a whole nother three-dimensional puzzle to figure out how to make all those pieces come together and not fall apart their forge welding they had to learn uh different techniques with torches and how to do how to make it all without modern um so you know as a modern sword maker you have to decide are you going to make it the the way that they did and try to really dive into that or are you just going to make it um, you know, the easiest way that you can possibly make and not, neither one's wrong. It's just a different mindset on, on what sword makers have. And some sword makers do not care about how they were done. And I'd say the ones that do have more, um, just more importance of the craft in general. You're not just aiming for the end goal. It's about leaving something after you're gone, leaving a, you know, a, culture that can continue and learn and really appreciate what i would say like the truth of the craft is and that's important because a lot of things with movies and and uh video games and things like that get kind of corrupted and it's nice to have some guys that that really care about the craft and propelling the modern day blacksmith or bladesmith into the modern world you know what's your favorite fictional sword Ooh, my favorite fictional sword i don't know i mean i i enjoy um this how like the kill bill sword we made was really cool i loved kill bill the movies um so like the hattori hanzo which they it's kind of a made-up person but he was like the master smith in japan making the best you know swords he wouldn't even make them anymore so making that was really neat i didn't have a lot to do with it but i definitely helped um I'll go ahead and give you, let's say, the Master Sword from Zelda. I grew up playing the Zelda games. Oh, so, yeah. So, like, making the Master Sword, which we did do, uh, was was kind of surreal. Kind of put me back in the boots of my eight-year-old self. This is nothing against this particular genre of fiction. I don't generally like the anime swords very much. They're too big, or they're too much of a caricature. I guess sure. I like this, the simple... The simplicity of it more. Yeah, and you know, that's something about it. Like with anime and video games, magic is always a factor. You know, whether they call it magic or they call it, you know, power-up skill level or whatever. So, like, being able to lift something that realistically would be 150 pounds and swing it around, it's pretty silly. But there's something to be said about that. I try not to give anybody crap depending on, you know, what they what they like. So if that's interesting to them to see the impossible done and made look easy by their hero, then that's okay, too. But I agree with you. I like to see them more realistic. Even if it's a very fantastic design that probably would have never existed. If it's a realistic feel to it and it looks like the sword would have balance and be usable, then that's kind of what I like the most. The only one that's modern that I've seen that I was like, oh, that looks impractical but kind of cool was that new Thanos sword. Yeah. <laughs> Like that was, ooh, that was pretty cool. We almost made that, but I didn't. I actually know the guys who make a lot of those weapons for the, for the movie uh, industry. And yeah, I can't imagine making that in steel. <laughs> that would be a lot. Yeah, I did. Is there like a general weight? Like where, okay, this is not, this, you can't, you can't use this thing anymore. 
Um, yeah, I mean, say like a giant two-handed sword, like a realistic two-handed sword. Like, really? Like, it's this is going to sound light. Uh, over like six pounds is like heavy. Think about it. You're not just one slice and it's over. You're on a battlefield, multiple people. If you conquer your first opponent, you're on to the next opponent and the next opponent. You're, this could be a 12-hour ordeal or it could be a one-hour ordeal. Either way, you want something you can swing over and over. And let me just tell you all, because most of you don't think about this, swords broke on the battlefield more often than they didn't. The sword was actually most often the secondary uh, line of defense. You're, you'd have a long spear or you know some sort of pole weapon that actually would be your first line of defense. You want to keep those people at distance as far away as possible. If your spear right. broke, you break out the sword. If your sword broke, you break out the dagger and so on. So so like a, like say you take Lord of the Rings, those style swords, something like that, over five pounds is too heavy. To harken back to when I was drunk and bought the ninja sword i do remember the next day like swinging it around a little bit and i was like mm-hmm. oh my god my arm like it felt like my tendons were coming off the next day like ooh, and that they must they were in good shape and that's a culture where their way of sword fighting is much different than what you think of in the movies so the you know like edge to edge ping 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 ping, ping. that's not japanese japanese is very deliberate one or two moves is a full fight like literally after that sword comes out of the sheath, they have a plan this and a plan that, and that's pretty much the fight. Um, how long did it take for you to get good? Um, I, I was pretty okay pretty quickly. Now, I would say a lifetime is the correct answer. I mean, six to eight years before I could do anything that was like something I would show other makers and be proud of. Um, but I was uh, lucky. I just, I had a background of all the right stuff. And when I got into it, it just, I like to tackle the, like if my brother told the story of me starting off, he would tell you, like, I always did the hardest things. Like I would ask, Hey, what's the hardest thing to do? And they would tell me and they would all go off to lunch and I would stay in the shop and I would try it and conquer it and do it. And I just continued my entire career to look at things that way like what's the next hardest thing what's the next hardest thing and and i'd go about it that way i got very comfortable in a grinder that's what people know me for kind of like i'm like the grinder guy um some people say i'm the best i don't don't know if i'm the best but i'm definitely the fastest and confident on a grinder so that allowed me to get through things uh very fast but i i'd say to get pretty okay at making swords it's Half a dozen years. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, at least. I mean, to Master Smith level, you know, 10 years minimum. Dang. Yeah. Minimum. What is the uh, the biggest mistake most people starting out make? Um, I think they try to just jump right into making something super big and super elaborate. Where, like, say you want to make a sword. You want to be a sword maker. I would say make a dagger first. It's this big. All the equipment's smaller, but it teaches you all the same lessons, all the proportions, everything, handle, guard, construction, heat treat. It's literally like a sword scaled down. So I would suggest start there. Um, don't start on trying to make a giant two-handed sword before you've done any kind of work. Um, but learn small and, and progress. That's what I would say. 
And really, if you want to be any kind of blade maker, knife maker, sword maker, whatever, start with blacksmithing, which people kind of combine into the same realm, but they're very different. I want to thank Matt so much for joining us. If you want to connect with him, we have linked to him on our social media accounts. We're profoundly pointless on TikTok, Twitter, and Instagram. And we've also included his information in the episode description. If you want to see how these swords are really made, his YouTube channel, That Works, is fascinating. It's just, it's so intricate and detailed and impressive the amount of work that goes into making these swords. And if you're listening to this in May or really early June, Matt is also going to be at Blade Show Atlanta. It's the world's largest knife show that runs June 3rd through June 5th. Okay, now let's bring in John Shaw and get to the pointless part of the show. Do you care about the moon? No. What kind of question is that? I keep seeing all these people posting about the moon, and I just, I don't really care about the moon. Like, I'll look up there and look at it and see it and be like, ooh, that's a full moon, or oh, the moon's out tonight. But I'm not going to go outside to look at the moon. And I'm going to scroll right past any picture you post of the moon after the first one. I mean, I I have wondered as of a few days ago... uh, just how impressive the moon actually is. And the fact that there's only been 12 people that have ever stepped foot on the moon. That's also kind of badass. It's interesting to me that we basically got to the moon 50, 60 years ago and we can't get back. Like, how do you forget how to get to the moon? That's the kind of uh, space exploration I'm into. Not sending Michael Strahan in a gigantic rocket penis to space. I forgot about this. I should have known better than to ask you any question about space so that we then had to hear your whole (laughs) rant about who gets to go to space and who doesn't. Do you think that you were born in the right time period for your life? Like, do you think that you were born at the right time or should you have been born 10 years earlier or 100 years earlier or later? It's kind of crazy you asked me that question. Somebody told me today, uh, that I I would have been a great employee in like the 1960s. So I don't know if that's a compliment or yeah. not. Uh, it kind of sounds like a backhanded compliment. Like you would have been good back then, but maybe you're not so good now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I guess to answer your question, I no, I I probably would say what would it be? Probably between the 40s and 60s is probably when I think I would have done done the best. See, I feel like I would have been better off if I was born in the mid-90s or, like, far in the future, like Star Wars level in the future, even though Star Wars is technically in the past. But we don't have to go into that. But I think, like, I was born too early. Like, I should have been born later in time. And you feel like you should have been born earlier in time. Yeah, I don't – see, I don't want to – well, I guess how how early are you are you saying? Well, I mean, like for you, I feel like you probably would have been better suited for the nineteen forties and fifties. Like I, you're I an older that. soul who loves reading about submarines. That's not true. But is you don't like reading about submarines? I do, but you always put this stupid spin on it, and it's like it's not it's not as. Uh, that's not like what he's saying, folks. How it many really books isn't. about submarines do you have? Just tell me the truth. 
probably six or seven. Yeah, dude. Then you like reading about submarines. So if there was a if there was a period in time in which you one hundred percent would not want to go through, what what period of time would that would that have been? Let's say a decade or or you know a, like more than ten years. What what, I, what span of time? I don't remember what the name of it is, but between like the thirteenth and the fifteenth century, like the Dark Ages, or oh. when they had the bubonic plague and basically almost wiped us out. Like that to me would be or probably be the worst time that I to be alive. Uh, say like in a hundred years, you know, people are reading about our period of of life right now. That's that's oncurring. Do you think this is one of the worst times to be alive? I can actually answer you this question because I was a history major in college, and no, it's not. And even though any kind of extreme things that we have going on in terms of political views or in terms of plagues, like it has all pretty much happened before, and this is kind of just the latest round of it. I think when you look back and you see things like the Black Plague where a third of the population was eliminated, like that's really bad. And I'm not just talking about specifically diseases and things like that. I think that whatever strife that we're going through right now, from a historical perspective, it's it's up there, but it's not the worst. There's been some really bad times, and we survived it. Wow, that was a yeah, dude. What do you go? Yeah, what do you fucking holy, say now? Yeah. didn't read of... that in your submarine books, did you? Oh man, see, I was almost gonna give you a compliment, but now. Nobody can see this, but I'm just I'm just gonna tell you to go, and I'm gonna move on. All right. Okay. John has a new shirt today. I have no chest hair, so even if I wanted to to show off a little bit of my garden, there is no garden. It's just a barren desert, so I can't even play that card. Wait a minute. You don't have any chest hair at all. No chest hair. How? What about back hair? How's your back? I have no, I have no back hair. Well, now that's a good trade there. Now, if I'm going to have back hair, I want to want to have some chest hair. I have not a hairy chest, but a, a hairier chest than you would think that I would have. Like on a scale of one to ten, I'm probably maybe a three or a four, but you would think that I would be like a one or a two. So people have been like, "Oh, your chest is a little, little, little hairier than I thought it would be." <laughs> it's kind of awkward because I can't really grow hair. From my thighs to my shoulders, but I have like toe hair. My eyebrows are wild. My hair grows back on the top of my head like crazy. I can't grow a beard, but man, my mustache comes in like all creeperish. I understand the struggle of the creeper mustache. I can grow a mustache in a second, but I couldn't grow a beard in five years. Armpit hair. I can grow some fucking serious armpit hair in a heartbeat if I need to. I shave my armpits. True story. You shave them? I trim them. I don't shave it. The shaving sounds painful. I just I shave it all the way down, and it grows back in a week. So, wait a minute. You use the same razor that you shave your face with? That to me seems a little. No, like, ooh, I use. I, I used to have a special one. Yeah, I use an electric uh, shaver or whatever for that. What about for your face? Uh, just a regular razor blade. That's the right answer. I've always wondered. If you were to go into a barber shop and you saw a dude getting straight, you know, straight bladed or whatever they call it on their head, is that dude a badass or is he just making a bad decision? I mean, the badass is probably the guy who can give him the the shave. I don't think that you get any credit for just sitting there. Like Michael said, make that change. Who? Change. 
Michael, man. Michael Jackson. Man in the you mirror. You can't just say Michael. You could be referring to a lot of different people when you just say Michael. I think of Michael Jordan as the first one that I'm going to think about, not Michael Jackson. If you say Michael, the first Michael I'm thinking about is Michael Jordan. That's a good, you know, that's a good top five we should do one day. Like, uh, most recognizable people by the by their first names, you know, like Prince or Michael, you know. Michael might be the only name where there's multiple people, though. Because I can think of, like, all right, you've got some Michaels. you got Michael Jordan, Michael Jackson, Michael Andretti. He's not even the most famous F1 Michael, but it's fine. Just keep Whatever. going. Whatever, but can you think of any other one-name people that have the same name, right? Like, Michael is the only one that I can think of where there's multiple people that you could just say, hey, it's it's Michael, man, and you would know who they're talking about. I can't think of anybody else. I guess I can't either. I mean, I'm just quickly going through, and it's maybe Steph, but I can't think, like, for Steph Curry— but I can't think of another Steph that would that would like go along with him. LeBron, there's only one LeBron. Yeah. Tiger, only one Tiger. Yeah, that's kind of wild. Well, look what we just solving Pandora's box. I think we're doing here. All right, yeah, let's give some shout outs here, shall we? Uh, let's see. We'll start with uh, Fanny Antonia, uh, Heather Badger. Why are you Joe screaming? S- Joe Sands. I'm because I'm excited. Jared uh, Simonson, Alec Harbaugh. Jacob Jimenez, Phil Lipold, Ava Farouche, Andressa Matos, and finally Ainsley Rivera. Appreciate all you uh, checking us out and everyone out there who checks us out. I can only think of probably like 10 to 20 people that would be on a first name basis. Madonna, Pele, who's the other famous soccer player? But see, there's two. There's Ronaldo. two Ronaldos. But there's two Ronaldo. There's Messi. There's Messi too. There's Xavi. There's PK. There's a lot of soccer players who have one name that are pretty but famous. If you somebody says Ronaldo, is there another famous Ronaldo that you might wonder who is the other Ronaldo? Yeah, there's there's two of them. There's Cristiano Ronaldo, and then there's uh, just Ronaldo, who was a Brazilian soccer player, both world class. Now, is that on the level of the Michael Michael d- discussion? In which, who's the Michael? Michael Jordan or Michael Jackson? Is it the same level as Ronaldo versus Ronaldo? Yeah. I mean, I, I, th- I think educated people would say, yeah, I really do. I'll always remember that. Okay, it's in the sports show. All right. Uh, let's see. Oh. Uh, would you rather – you're the one who brought it up. Would you rather have to wear dress pants every day or wear a tie every day? Well, I mean in- – Dress pants, because if you got to wear a tie every day, then you kind of also have to have the whole rest of it all going on at the same time. Like, it's not like you can wear a tie and basketball shorts or a tie and, like, flannel pajama pants to work. So you you've got to have everything jeans, else. You can wear other kind of If pants. you're an asshole. Or does it make you an asshole if you wear... Yeah. Little... Yes. If you do that on a regular basis... Yeah. Make it not because like like make a decision. Are you fancy or are you not fancy? Like don't try to split the difference and think I'm gonna be okay with that. Pick one or the other. Because you're trying to be like cool and professional. And I don't appreciate that. Like you're sending me mixed signals with a tie and jeans. Pick one. 
what what if what if say you're interviewing somebody what would you do or, or what are you more impressed with somebody who shows up in sweatpants or someone who shows up overdressed I would be more impressed with somebody who shows up in sweatpants because they would probably have to be really good or just have an incredible sense of confidence. I feel like if somebody shows up in sweatpants, they're just basically saying, fuck it. I don't care one way or the other. Right. You need me. Another kind of offset of that. What's What's the worst interview experience you've ever had with you interviewing? Uh, in terms of, uh, was it just terrible from the start? Were you not dressed enough? Do oh, you have I cried any bad during, experiences. Yeah, I cried during an interview and didn't get the job because the person. Uh, <laughs> no, oh, you, you did it because I did the interview right after I found out that my mom died, and then they talked about, well, when can you schedule a follow up interview? God. And it suddenly hit me that I was going to have to fly out for her funeral, and I kind of teared up for a brief moment before I said, I don't know what my schedule is going to be in the next couple of days because my mom passed away. Now, how, now how do you feel, John? How do you feel? I mean, I don't feel as bad as when you just straight out come at me for no reason and go, Oh, you're going to talk about my dead mother now. So yeah, you brought up my dead mother again. Way to go. Uh, you started laughing. Well, because Maybe you should... I knew, I should have known it wasn't going to be like anything where, you know, you actually cried for a reason other than that. I, I got. I didn't technically cry. I got a little like, a little bit like, <laughs> like a little bubbly, like a little bubbly. Well, if he would have been in person, you they might not have been able to tell over Zoom, but in person you would have been able to notice. Unclear. Didn't get that job either, and I'm pretty sure it's because of that. Oh well, then that company. You want to blast them right now? No, we probably shouldn't. But uh, I don't even remember what they called actually. I think they closed <laughs> down. What did you have? You ever fucked one up really bad? Uh, yes, but it wasn't really my fault. Uh, yeah, I have actually. I well, went how to is it not uh, your fault. I, I went. Uh, I, I was home from one year from college, and I was trying to make some quick money. So I went to a local department store and was trying to just get a, a grocery store, not department, like grocery slash department store. I was trying, trying to get to a, a job as a, as a bagger. And uh, the person told me I was overqualified. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You graduated college and then tried to get a job as a grocery store bagger? No, this was in between. This was like one summer. Uh, I think this was my going into my sophomore year, I believe, of college. It would have been the summer before that. I, I mean, I'm a little bit confused as to why you didn't get the job i mean you're not are you overqualified is that they just were you asking for too much money like what was the re i mean no i mean they just overqualified i remember uh, i didn't even go into like some office right i thought it was gonna be like a. I mean i was a young kid i you know i i had had a job before that but it wasn't it was it wasn't anything like this uh and I, I, I thought I was going to have like this big formal interview. I remember I wore like a like a suit and I had nice dress <laughs> shoes on and everything. And I I walk in and I uh, hand and I hand them my 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 resume, which you know you're you know you're in the thirteenth grade essentially. You don't have shit to really put on it. So you're and, nineteen twenty years old with a resume and a suit applying for a job as a grocery store sacker. Yeah, and uh, man, it is. Uh, I'm pretty sure I left there. Uh, after I got done 
doing some vandalizing, and I'm pretty sure they laughed at me uh, at, at how prepared I was. Wait a minute. You vandalized the place after you didn't get a job? Well, they, you know, I, I wanted, I wanted an answer. I wanted to know why, you know, what does overqualified mean? I'm just going to be bagging groceries for seven fifteen an hour or whatever it was uh, they, for part part time hours. Yeah, they made the right call. And, uh, I remember uh, his name was Brian. I remember, and he. He walks up and he takes my resume. And he's like, "Well, come with me." And we sit down at like uh, stores still have them, I think, but like the little uh, blood pressure machine things where you can like do your own blood pressure. Like we sat at one of those, and he was like reading it through, and he's like, "Oh, okay." Blah, blah. And then he gets up, he comes back about five minutes later, and he's like, "Yeah, you know, John, everything seems really, really impressive." Blah blah blah. I remember this too because like it was it really like stuck with me. And he's like, "You're you're just probably not going to be a really good fit here." Um, you know, you're, you're pretty overqualified for the position you applied for. And, uh, you know, I started asking some questions. I was probably being a little rude and he told me to, to leave the store and never come back. So I knocked over a couple of things on my way out. What is wrong with you as a person? You are a Karen at heart. You are. I just want. And it's time for you to accept it and move on. It's time for you to accept it and acknowledge the fact. I'm not a Karen. That you are. You I might have a had... tantrum. How old is this guy that you're interviewing with? He's probably your age. You're I'm... throwing a tantrum. I might have had some anger issues, but I can tell you I am not a Karen. Yesterday, the wife and I and, and the kids were at Costco, and my wife was telling me that I need to stop being such, uh, for lack of better words, a sissy. Because I was not, I was not doing things according to her the proper way in Costco. I was letting people cut us off. I was letting people, you know, get in front of us. Um, yeah, you can't do that. Yeah, dude, I have anxiety. We've, we've talked. You can't about let this. people cut in front of you with, in line. If it's a you busy know? place, you can't do that with your wife around. You can't show any weakness in front of them. They'll seize upon that. It's her fault to begin with. Nobody goes to Costco on a Sunday at noon. All right, you're asking. Oh, that is true. You're asking d just for disaster. Well, maybe she wanted. Maybe it was a test, and be like, "Look, am I going to stay with this guy? I'm going to give him this test. We're going to go to Costco, and we're going to see if he steps yeah, up and finally starts acting like a man." We and are we far past the testing phase of our relationship. If she's still uh -huh. testing me now, then I'm I'm fucked because I'm going to fail everyone. They're always testing, always judging. And that's just how it should be, quite frankly. And you need to come up to the challenge. It doesn't sound like you're doing that. All right. Uh, so our top five is top five sharp objects. What's your number five? Uh, so my number five is a box cutter. Ooh. I think that's actually a little high okay. for a box cutter. It should be lower, in my opinion, on the list. I have it lower on the list. But I think the box cutter is definitely should be in there. My number five, because this is a personal thing, is an edger for your yard. Because the edging of the yard ultimately really dictates the overall quality of the yard. You can have great grass, a great mower, but if your edge job doesn't look good, that yard doesn't look good, and it reflects poorly upon you. So a good edger is one of the best things that you can have. And in a pinch, you could mow the yard with an edger. It would take you a long time, but the edging of your yard is ultimately what sets the standard of how that yard is viewed. I want to disagree with you. However, I can't. I mean, you're 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 right, I guess. I mean, right. It's the edging. 
Edging is important. And yeah, you you know, the grass can be cut great, but if you have, you know, if the edges aren't kept up, it's going to look all shaggy and, and crappy. You got to have good edging. That's the secret to a good yard. Okay. Uh, all right. So my number four is a razor blade, specifically to be used in a shaver uh, or a razor uh, specifically. But yeah, but just a razor blade in general. It's a multi-purpose thing. can can be used for a lot of different uh, reasons. What else are you using a razor blade for? I mean, you can use it to, as a pseudo box cutter. You know, you can use it to 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 cut your hair. You know, you can use it as a as an uh, like a straight cocaine. line. Just say cocaine. Which is what I was hoping you would say. <laughs> you can use, it, to for... use it to cut cocaine. This is a PG thirteen show. Just drugs. Just, <laughs> just siphon out drugs. Okay. Just drugs. All right, fine. Drugs. Just mainly drugs. All drugs. All Do you think most people outside of a shaving razor have a razor blade in their house? Hmm. If they do, they don't realize, you know, like they don't they don't realize it and they don't utilize it. Yeah, I would say it's an underused tool. Um, I don't have razor blade on my list, but I, I, I OK. All right. I feel like it can't be any higher than number four. I went back and forth a lot for my number four. I ultimately went with a saw, but I thought about putting an axe in there. Hmm. What do you think is more useful, a saw or an axe? I think an axe is more practical, probably used more, but a saw is uh, is probably better. It's a probably better of a tool, but an axe, I think, is probably probably deserves to, to be on a list higher than a saw, I would say. I almost feel exactly the opposite. I feel like the axe seems like it would be more useful and better, but ultimately the saw is actually the probably the more useful of those two tools. Because what can you do with an axe that you can't do with a saw? And there are things that you can do with a saw that you can't do with an axe. Like the axe doesn't have the precision, which is why I ultimately went with a saw. But I, uh, I feel like an axe is, is a more efficient tool. When, when when you need it in a pinch, you need to chop down a tree, you can might get that thing in 12 swings. Also, I this brings me back to one thing real fast, completely off topic. Family and I went to the zoo, Detroit Zoo, on Saturday, and I saw a buffalo, a bison, up close, all right? Oh, there is no way that fucking thing is beating me in a 40-yard dash standing still. This thing had to be 2,000 pounds. There is no way that thing has beaten me in a 40-yard dash standing still. It, it just for, isn't. For people who are new to the podcast, John thinks that he can outrun a buffalo over a short distance, over a 40-yard dash, which is completely nonsensical and never going to happen because, number one, a buffalo can run at 40 miles an hour, which is the same speed that a bear can travel. And a bear runs a 100-meter dash in about five seconds. So a buffalo can probably cover 100 meters in about five to six seconds. Second point, a buffalo can jump six feet in the air. Now, if it can jump six feet over the air, that is going from zero to an explosive movement. So if it has enough explosive power to jump a 2,000-pound animal six feet in the air, it can beat you off the starting line. It is going to dust you. I don't know why you consider this. Con- continue to think this, despite all logical evidence to the contrary. I can see you're oh. Googling anything that could potentially help your case. You don't have it. 
No, I'm just I, I I don't think you could beat an elephant. I don't think uh, for, I'm not saying that I could not that I would not beat it in, in a longer distance. But there is no way the thing that I saw laying on the earth eating grass on Saturday is it couldn't even beat my toddler in a 40-yard dash. I I can't even have this conversation with you anymore because like you can't even see like the logic right in front of your face. If an animal can jump six feet in the air from a standing still spot, it can jump that high, then it has incredible explosive power and can absolutely beat you off the line. It's going to dust you. It's going to smoke you. I can tell you right now, the thing that I saw on Saturday, it it can't jump six feet. Do you think that Buffalo is looking at you like you're some prime physical athlete over there? You think that Buffalo is like, I don't want to mess with that guy Dude. in a race. Look at him. He's in good shape. You, you what do know you think the Buffalo is looking at you thinking? You know what I saw when I saw that Buffalo? I saw, yeah, no wonder your species almost got killed off. All right? That's what I saw. Wow. All right? There was All like right. 50 to 60 million Buffalo at one time, which is an incredible amount. If you Actually, I, I saw it and I was like, holy shit. How, are, you know, how did those things get taken down by arrows? Uh, mm-hmm. uh, they're called guns, John. However, uh, I, I still stand by that, and someday maybe I'll get the chance to, to prove you wrong. It would absolutely destroy you. An old buffalo in its dying moments is still no. going to be able to beat you. Yes. No. Uh, okay, What's your? are you on number three yeah, yet? Yeah, so my number three, uh, I, I went with a kitchen knife as my number three. Oh, that's exactly what I have as my number three is a kitchen knife. I'm looking okay. at it. It says kitchen knife, and I thought about putting chef's knife, but I specifically put kitchen knife. I think it's the most okay. useful knife because it it can accomplish everything if you need it to. Well, yeah, and uh, I mean, uh, I, in terms of the kitchen utensils, it's probably the most used, I would think. No, no, fork is more used kitchen utensil than a spoon uh, than a not kitchen knife. You're, I mean, you're you're a dad. You have you have kids. I mean, I, I chop up their food every single night. Right, and so what do you do? You use a knife, and what else? Sometimes I don't use a fork. Sometimes I have soup. And you're chopping that up with a knife? You're chopping up soup with a knife? Just, what's, what's what? You, your number Just, three was a kitchen fork. knife, right? The fork is the most used <laughs> kitchen you utensil. Said number, you said your number three, right, was a... Uh... <laughs> kitchen knife. All right. Uh, so then my, my number two, I, I think it's kind of cheap, actually. But I, I just have a blade. Just any kind of blade in general as my number two. Yeah, dude. I mean, these are all blades. Yeah, but like, just if I if I need a weapon to fight masses with, I'm going with some kind of blade, like a sword, like a scythe, like an ice skate, something, something to use as a weapon to defend myself. Some kind of blade. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I think it's a cop out answer, but it's not like you're gonna be able to come up with something better right now. So you're gonna uh, hate my number one. So number two is a box cutter. Okay. Box cutter is incredibly useful. Like because it can accomplish everything that a knife can accomplish and it can cut boxes, which is very it's basically a combination of a knife and a razor blade. My number 1, I appreciate that. Uh my number 1 is scissors. That's my number 1 too. No. Yeah. No. It has to be scissors. I don't know what else it could be, honestly. I'd be offended if somebody put something. What else could it even be besides scissors? 
Yeah, I mean, there's there's not a whole lot of uh, thinking of sharp objects. I I almost wanted to put a can opener, like a beer bottle opener, on there, but that would have been a complete Homer pick, and I, I didn't do that. Obviously, it's also not sharp. What a uh, bottle opener, can opener? Oh, yeah, they're sharp. Well, not like a beer can opener, not like a beer bottle opener. That's not sharp. It can be if you pinch your finger in there. Wait a minute. So were you letting people go in front of you in line on purpose? Or were you like in that weird place where it's unclear who's in the line and who's not and you didn't really step up or what happened? The best way that I can describe it, I know you've never seen this show, so it's not going to make any sense to you, is Modern Family. There's a character on there. His name's Cam. And uh, for those of you out there who know what I'm talking about, he's a little overdramatic and kind of gets frustrated and uh, and things and situations and kind of loses his cool. That's kind of me. It's not that like anything specific happened, but you know, if someone wanted to go around us, like I would stop the cart, let him go around us. My wife would be angry at me because I stopped, but hey, you know, it's just it's just what it is. She was mad also because I went directly for the meat, and apparently you're supposed to start like in the fruit in the in the cooler thing and then come out and apparently yeah, I there's a natural traffic. order to it you don't go just willy-nilly you got to have a plan yeah well i didn't have a plan and apparently i ruined the trip i could see that what do you have in your honorable mention uh so uh let's see i have a fishing hook uh just because I, are you I gonna like get a divorce <laughs> why why are you asking me that no i, I don't think keep... so <laughs> Not that I know of. Uh, let's see here. I have nail clippers. Uh, I, I had. I, I don't know if this is a cop out either, but a um, like a like a medical needle. You know, like a like a shot. You know, whatever it's called. The like a needle that they use to to for it's vaccines called a and stuff. Needle man. Yeah, a needle. Whatever. Fine. It's fine. Uh, a needle. Let's see. You said saw already. Um, yeah, that's kind of it. I was looking at another list, but you know, I nah. There's nothing really else that I would even enter, entertain. The only other things that I would consider would be like nail clippers and an axe. I could put a lawnmower on there if you absolutely had to. Um, like I don't know if like a blender blade counts as a sharp object. Or like anything in a blender. I, don't, I think it's more just like force than it is <clears throat> sharp. I've always wondered uh, just how bad that would F your hand up. You know, you ever thought about that? Like when you're putting stuff in to make a shake and you're like, man, like, is it like the movies? Would it really just shred my hand? I think about that with a disposal, not with the blender. though. Ooh. Like, ooh, what if I put my hand? What do you think would hurt more? Putting putting your hand in a blender or putting your hand in the disposal? Probably a blender because I feel like the disposal would be a, a lot because I think there's more force maybe or like there, there's bigger blades or something. I feel like the disposal you would you would go into shock much more quickly as we're a blender. Plus, I don't think you would be able to see it in a disposal. The blender, like, you would see it happening. And just, oh, man, that's pretty terrible. But I think the disposal has more power. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I'm in yeah. agreement with you. I'm going to go blender, disposal, wood chipper. That would be my, like, <laughs> if I had choices, first I would go into a blender, then I would go into a disposal then the last thing would be a wood chipper because you're not coming out of the wood chipper. Mm. 
You can get out of the blender. That's like probably this is going to hurt a lot. The disposal, you're probably losing some digits. Do you think a wood chipper could take me? You think you think I'd like break yeah, the machine? Dude. See, this is what I'm talking about. This is what I'm talking about in regards to the buffalo. This ties it all back together. You have an incredible overestimation of your own abilities. What do you think is tougher, you or like a pine tree? Like a tree, dude. It rips up trees. It's not going to even blink with you. It's not even slowing down mowing through you. Like the buffalo. The buffalo isn't even going to, like, you're not even anywhere near its realm of competition, man. It's a whole nother thing. The wood chipper doesn't going to have any trouble with you. The buffalo is not going to have any trouble with you. You don't exist. You are a fly. Is this why I'm never going to go to space? Yes, it is. Okay, that's going to go ahead and do it for this episode of Profoundly Pointless. I want to thank you so much for joining us. If you get a chance, leave us a rating or a review. We really appreciate it. It really helps us out. And let us know what you think are some of the best sharp objects. I think it's hard to beat scissors as number one just because they're so versatile. But if there's there's got to be some that we miss that you would just be like, oh, yeah, that's a good one. So let us know what they are. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.